All right, welcome to Brew Talk with John and Forrest. I'm John the Chemist. I'm Forrest the Brewer. We are friends from college who decided to record this podcast. We've been reading this book. It's a brewing science, a multidisciplinary approach. By Michael Mosher and Kenneth Trantham. So we're going to be talking about the biology and cultivation of barley. Are we going to just dive right in now? Let's dive right in. It's like this. Mesopotamia, I told you last time. It was the start of civilization just because of beer. I'm excited about that. Just because of beer. Yeah, I guess that's kind of where the wild barley comes from. It's, I mean, it's got a pretty big range along the Silk Road, if you think about it, going from Tibet all the way to the, all the way to Northern Africa. That's a pretty good stretch of the Silk Road that barley gets that like, was uh, yeah that was spread uh, about <clears throat> i thought that was pretty unique and maybe that's why like the egyptian hieroglyphs show like them making the ancient beer process and everything you know because they had access to barley and that was really cool like i didn't know you know tibetans were making the same using the same barley as you know egyptians were can you can you pronounce the name of wild barley i'm gonna call it wild barley but i'll give it a shot hordium spontaneum perfect hordium spontaneum i like that i'll go with that so that's the wild barley. Well, let's talk about spikes and spikelets. Are those yes. are those kind of related to cactus thorns and needles because they're needle spine protector of the plant? So um, do you remember when in the last chapter when we were reading about the barley and it showed we had there it showed a couple pictures of what two row and four row and six row barley look like. And what yeah. the spikelets are literally where the the, the corn where the corn the kernel is kept that's the spikelet you take this the the piece that looks like a wheat like the outer shell like the shell of the wheat the long piece that yeah. part comes off and there's like a kernel in that so the yeah. spikelet is that whole structure both the kernel the corn kernel of the of the barley uh, and the part that's holding it onto the plant not just the spine itself okay not just that the makes... spine itself yeah okay so I thought it was I just think, that hairy bit I read spikelets as being the, the the part that's growing off the barley that is the seed and its encapsulating structure that's keeping it on the stem. Yeah. Okay. And what how those grow on the stem is what defines it as two row, four row, or six row. Hordium distichin and hordium vulgare. So the hordium distichin, whatever, is the two row barley. And then the second one that you mentioned is the six row barley. Um, and brewing, which barley do we, uh, which bar which barley do you use in brewing to make your mash usually? Oh, by far the most common is two row because that has the most diet, diet, diastatic. Yeah, it has most starch in it for uh, sugar <laughs> to break down. Usually they're just the bigger corns uh, because mm -hmm. they don't have to compete with all the other little corns on there but uh you can make some fatty six rows that's really what they want is a fatter barley corn gives you more sugar well what was getting to me though is so now i'm thinking though because then like the six row is going to have a higher protein level right mm -hmm. because it's not going to have as much starch in there yeah. so would a protein then be better for making a sour because then sours and th the bacteria has something to attach to 
there's protein in everything in both both situations. Yeah, yeah. And in some cases, the pro like realistically, what you need that protein for and where that protein really helps is providing amino acids later on after you've denatured it. I mean, they also aid in enzymatically. It helps the yeast break those sugars down into alcohol. So you need those proteins for other things, but you don't really do yourself any good if you have a ton of protein and no sugar to make the alcohol with, for one. Exactly. You have and a small beer, if anything. I'm sure as we're going to learn later on, these proteins probably have a different effect depending on how much is there and what happens. So we're talking about all of this makeup of the barley, but we haven't even gotten to like the main structure of the barley. No, we haven't even talked about it. So we keep talking about corn. So inside of the springlet, spikelet, is the barley corn. That's the hard uh, seed part of the barley. And that's composed of the embryo, the endosperm, and the pericarp testa. The embryo is what ends up developing into the plant. Sorry, isn't it the endosperm that converts to starch? The endosperm, I believe, is where the starch is stored in the barley seed. Okay. And then there's that barium, the scutellum, that lies in between the embryo and the endosperm that allows the proper transfer of nutrients across the barrier so that you don't get too much sugar or too little sugar when you need it. And as we're going to talk about later, when you're making barley into like something you can plant as a seed or something that you're trying to extract the sugar, you kind of need to be able to get the starch out of the endosperm. So is the pericarp the hard side, the outside, the um, shell? I think the husk is the outside. So like if you think about like a peanut, let's take a peanut. So there's a shell on the outside of the peanut, the husk. Uh, and then oh, there's like okay. then there's like a thin layer, right? When you shell a peanut, there's like a thin layer between the husk of the peanut and the nut part. It's yeah, that little like a little bit darker nut, yeah. red, like a paper. That's the pericarp. Okay, okay. And on the inside, you have the the embryo and endosperm. Part. That's actually a pretty good example. I, I like that peanut breakdown because yeah, going with the little diagram that does make sense with the. Husk I mean, those are legumes, and they're definitely like a different seed structure overall. But I think that uh, just getting a visual of a seed that you're kind of familiar with. Man, this is scientific. But yes, I I like using the uh, seeds like that. I know peanuts and the uh, sunflower seeds as an example because that helps you know me to visualize right. what a pericarp is, what a husk is, whether you're growing the bar growing the barley or brewing the barley what you're really interested in is utilizing that sugar and that energy that that seed is stored to achieve the goal that you want whether it be growing a new plant or brewing your beer yep so our focus realistically is going to be on the endosperm and breaking down that endosperm into sugars that are usable by the yeast to turn into alcohol so like is that husk help protect it against cold weather is it a cold weather crop like because it's pretty hard like you have to mill it and you have to turn it into a grist but i'm not 100 percent sure they're definitely the husk and the pericarp are definitely protective layers well you know i'm pretty sure that uh barley is a relatively drought resistant crop and i think it can uh be planted in the winter no, not in the winter. It can be used as a winter crop. 
So that means you'd have to use it in the fall, but I believe that means it's hardy enough to withstand cold weather because Germany is one of the main producers mm. of barley, I think, in the world. In Russia, cold countries well, are I mean, like brewing barley. Like that those those things go hand in hand with why we brew with barley, right? Having a lot of energy stored up, right? That's how we survive in the winter without food. Is you store up energy like a beer hiber a bear hibernating. <laughs> Those imperial <laughs> stats. So the way I think about it is like these barley store up pretty they, they store up a lot of energy, which is why we want it. The energy's in sugar, right? Yeah. That's, that's where that's where we're getting our energy from. Packed so these, in there, yeah. That's why they're probably more resistant because they have the energy and the structure that you need to be able to be resistant. So we want that energy to make alcohol out of. It wants that energy to be resistant and be able to grow under adverse conditions or grow optimally. My goodness. So I don't know if what part of this chapter it is in, but I was totally blown away. Like almost all seeds that we use nowadays, like if you go to the store, buy seeds and go plant them, they've been uh, what Germanized, like in like ready to made made ready for you to use. They're not just you know right out of the plant and just here you go. One thing the farmer definitely has to do with the way, like, with the way the seeds are processed off the plant when you're harvesting versus when you're planting, mm -hmm. there is like a dormancy phase that the, the barley has to go through before it's able to be planted as well. Yeah. Um, Blew my mind. That was crazy to read. Where is most of the barley grown in the U.S. that's used in beer? Oh, well, that's only going to be in a couple of states. Um, Idaho, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Washington State. All right. So um, we're going to take a break real quick. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about what the farmer does and the process, a little bit of the process that they go through to dry the barley before they grow more barley. And then after that, we're going to talk about the process that the malter goes through to get the barley ready for malting. Oh, my favorite guys, the maltsters. Hey, John. Um, so where we left you, we were talking about farming barley in the United States. Now we're going to talk about the way that we dry barley to get it ready for malting and or farming. So realistically, farmers want to keep this barley at about, they want to harvest it when the moisture of the seed level is fairly low and then they sell it when the moisture is even lower. To get that moisture lower, they have to dry the barley out. Yep. There's two common ways. One common way is batch drying, also known as a, a tower dryer. But these batch dryers basically drop the barley down level by level, and each level that it goes down, it gets drier. That's exactly like the continuous dryer, except that it feeds onto like a conveyor belt, but uh, then it has to be stored at specific temperatures to maintain it too. So after they achieve that moisture level, then it has to be stored at special temperatures, which is... Uh, yeah, they're pretty high temperatures and this storing at, at this storing process also breaks that, is that dormant period that you need for germination. And oh. germination, you need both germination to grow it and you need germination to malt because the endosperm helps mm -hmm. you in your malting process by providing enzymes 
yep. that will help break those sugars or those starches down. So it's kept cool to be dormant and then they heat it back up to break that dormancy. And then the germination process happens whether the maltster wants to do it to start malting. Um, whereas the farmer would do the same thing. They would germinate and plant. Okay. Okay. Right now this barley's kind of traveling a parallel path and then it's going to diverge at one point. But before it diverges, let's talk about diseases and pests. Oh, the worst because they ruin our sweet, sweet barley, which good makes beer. our sweet beer. Good beer is made from good ingredients. You know, I've heard some weird things, though, where some uh, bacterias and funguses on grains that were then brewed have made people start hallucinating or going, uh, you know, tripping out. And uh, I didn't see it mentioned in this book, but I don't have any scientific backing for it. The things we can control are better than the things we can't control. And that is going to be where I leave my answer to that. You don't want to need the sarium head blade or anything like that? If we can't control the product and we don't know what we're going to get at the end, one of the reasons that we're going through this whole brewing process is so that we learn what we can and can't control to get what we want at the end. Chocolate bars. They have like eight spider legs in them per bar or something like that. So I'm sure that there has to be an acceptable number of arachnids, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. things like that, per part per million, you know, part per billion in barley. All right, let me change my statement to match up more with what you're saying. The things we can control are better than the things we can't control, but we can only control things to a certain threshold. And decide anything below this threshold is fine. Anything above this threshold is not fine. And that is what they're gonna do when they start grading these barleys. They set a threshold, that's where they define what is good and what is bad. Yes, there's a lot of room to go and play. Here's some guidelines to let you know of things that you can control to change things that you'd like to control. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's food grades, you know, USDA grades, they give them all out for things like that. You know, like honey has several grades and I don't want to buy the bad honey when I make my meads. Yep. Yeah, there's different types of grades on everything. And I'm sure we could always go with the small corns of barley, make some type of beer out of it. Mm -hmm. Won't be a very good beer, but you can make something. I mean, totally. it will be a beer, but yeah. would that be a, something you'd want to sell or produce again? And yeah, and there? if you're a big brewery, like if you're thinking about a big brewery and you need to sell all over the United States the same exact craft brew. Yeah. You need pretty high quality control for that. and Mm -hmm. Pretty That's good precision yeah. in your brewing process. And I feel like for me, I like the idea of having high precision in my process and then being able to adjust those knobs as I see fit. Yep. Me, that's the optimal thing rather than, because there's all kinds of things down the road that are going to change the flavor in unpredictable ways. I'd rather oh. put some freaking exotic yeast in, in my secondary fermentation and see what kind of flavors that imparts after a year. Like a bread to make it sour and farmy. Oh. In some sours, in some ways that you would make sours is you would ferment with the yeast that's gonna produce the alcohol that you okay. want. And then like an ale yeast. And then you'll add in your secondary some bread or some lacto and you'll let that go for a long time. 
and that Ooh. will provide the flavors that you need after you've let it condition. That's the kind of stuff that I would like to lose control with, like to give up control. But as far as like malts go and just getting my basic sugars that I'm going to ferment, I'd rather that be a very precise operation and I can somewhat predict how much alcohol I'm going to get and what my process is going to look like so that when I start doing things that are variable, I can know that that is the variable causing the change. And I think it's thanks to these uh, sorting and grading that we have in our country and just in, pro in the process of brewing that al allows us to get that because uh, wouldn't be possible otherwise. So we want the big barley, but the small barley that doesn't really get used needs to be separated out before it's given to the malter. Uh, the big stuff, what's the big corns called? There's the four grades. Yeah, what is yeah. it? What are the three terms? Plump, which is their first two because there's, the, there's three screens. Your first two uh, reservoirs are considered plump. Then you have the thins, and then everything that falls through all three screens is the through material, and that's uh, the dockage that you were talking about. Basically, just agricultural grain at that point, or like feed grain. For USDA one grade one two row, the maximum amount of thins that you're allowed to have is about five percent of, of the weight. Woo! So five percent by mass ends up being thin, and then unbroken kernels you have to have. 98%, so 2% of your kernels can be broken kernels. So you end up with about 7% in the highest grade two-row barley. 7% is barley that the malter doesn't necessarily want to malt. But I'm guessing that malters are typically going to buy the highest grade or close to the highest grade. Well, what about, so sixth row though, because sixth row is a variable one. That one was okay. So because it's not used the most, that was interesting to me that it kind of had a lower, I guess, standard where you can have, you know, 97% unbroken kernels, which is 1% lower than two row, but that's on grade one. Once you go to two, it drops down like four points there. And I was like, okay, okay, six row. And then it gets even worse there because then when you start to look at the thins allowed, so like in just two row one, uh, that's 7% thins with 3% there broken. That's 10% of unwanted already. Mm -hmm. Like far surpasses even two rows grade two. So it's these are unwanted for unwanted for the maltster. Correct. Correct. They can but damage their equipment. Unwanted for the brewer too. It's going to be unpredictable. Yeah, less predictable. That's true, less predictable malts. And that's the one thing we wanna have guaranteed. Our malts gotta have guaranteed because it's gonna be the off flavors of yeast that control different things. All right, um, when we come back, we're gonna dive into malting and get into the nuts and bolts of the first steps of brewing. Let's get back into this. All right, let's do it. So malting barley, you know, after it's done being uh, dried and stored by the farmer, it's sold to the maltsters. And they are the ones that will germinate it, kiln it, whatever, you know, go through yeah. the process of making it ready.
to be brewed with. So when you go to the brew shops and you pick up a sack of grain, that is ready to go. You just ready to mash, unless it needs to be milled. But that's all side note. So this is what we were talking about earlier. Remember when I was saying you need that endosperm? That endosperm helps you break down the starch in the malting process. It's one of the things that first helps you start to get that starch ready to become the sugar to ferment. And that's exactly what happens. They use the biological machinery. They take the biology that's already there. And instead of wasting energy trying to get it out themselves, they let the endosperm do the work. So they soak it. That's what they're doing in the steeping phase is basically trying to get it. Activating it, basically. We know waking it up. It, waking it up, waking up the biological components that are going to yep. help start breaking down that starch into the sugars that we want. Or the maltster adds heat and water and then lets the biology pretty much do the rest of getting but that starch there, to sugar. There is the problem that you can't add too much water because too much moisture, it'll rush too quickly through the germination process and maltster won't be able to control it. Too so the little of water won't germinate fully and you won't be able to get those sugars out and it will be you know, not as useful of a grain. So the way that they do it is they get it from the farmer dormant. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 way to, the way to germinate it and get it back is to put it in water, add a little bit of heat like we said before, and then the maltster waits till it increases to about 45% moisture. So you're going from like 12% moisture in a dormant phase. Oh, you're doubling that phase, moisture then. No, 12%. It's more than double. Oh, shit, yeah. It's almost what? quadrupling. It's pretty much quadrupling. Four yeah. times the amount of moisture you're adding. Yeah. To the... To it. I bet these things swell up pretty good, huh? Yeah, I'm sure you'd have a, like a whole floor or a whole pool of them, you know, because you got to do this in big batches. So once they start taking on moisture, once the embryo starts taking on moisture, what ends up happening is an acid is formed. It's called gibberellic <laughs> acid. And it's basically a hormone that says, hey, proteins, it's time to start working and it triggers the action of the seed and starts breaking down that starch into the sugar that the seed thinks it's gonna to use to make a new plant. But the maltster has other plans for this seed. <laughs> so it gives it the, the proteins a quick gibber? Yeah, so along with the, the gibber, gibberellic acid, <laughs> so the gibberellic acid starts letting the, start signals the biological stuff to start working. So the proteins that it gets going are the alpha amylase, the beta amylase, uh, the limit dextrinase, the gluconase, the pentosinase, the protease, and the phytase. All ACE is, when you hear that, it's a protein that is also classified as an enzyme. So it's a protein that does chemistry. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to do protein. We're going to do chemistry with these at with these proteins on the starch and on the sugars. Basically, that's all it is. Basically, all these proteins, their main form, is their main goal, sugar. yeah, to convert the starches to sugar. Into sugar. Yeah, so you're breaking down big molecules into small molecules is basically what these ACEs, all these proteins or enzymes, whatever you want to call them, are doing. Releasing everything. Yeah, letting it all out. Okay. Now, what's the difference between partially modified and the fully modified? The endosperm, it's modified by the action of water. I think what we're doing with these en enzymes is changing the endosperm. 
par partially modified malt must go undergo additional processing during the mash. Right. So if we can break that, if we can break the endosperm down as much to the fully modified version, then mm -hmm. it is going to do the best job that it can converting the starch into sugar. So what's an extra step though? Because I know how to do fully modified because I'm sure that's what we buy off the shelf as the brewer is a fully modified. I'm just going to take a guess and it's going to be some sort of moisture, some sort of moisture control and heat. But you know, I, that sounds pretty damn good to me so far. It seems to be on point. <laughs> it seems to be on point. So I'm going to take a guess right now and we'll find out. You can start creating proteins that you don't want that can cause haze in the beer. So as an aside, Forrest, you and I have talked quite a bit about whether or not you should have haze in beer or not. And for a lot of us, we're used to haze in beer now. We see it all the time. It's kind of a fad. But one of the things that I'm learning about haze in beer is a lot of the times, unless you know and can pinpoint where that haze is coming from, mm -hmm. It's typically coming from something that's happening in a process that you don't want to have happen. There's a lot really? of places that haze can come in that is an indicator of a step that was not optimal. And I think that is one of the arguments for having clear non-hazy beer. And one of the reasons why that is an indicator of a good brewing process than having a hazy beer. Now, I totally like hazy beers, and there are a lot of hazy beers that I really love. That typically haze arises because you've introduced something that you didn't want in the first place. In this case, when you're making the mash, you introduce this beta glucan that you didn't want, and it's because you did not break down the endosperm all the way and you disrupted the grain bed because of it. But that's from partially modified endosperms. If we're buying fully modified, they shouldn't have a significant larger amount of B-glucan remaining. You want to make sure that the malter has done a good job modifying yeah. the endosperm so that exactly you don't before get I'm hit. buying it. So yeah. that's what, and then that that definitely goes with what I'm saying, which goes back up to our USDA grade and those percentages of the unbroken kernels versus the maximum. There's some amount of beta, beta glucan that's allowed and doesn't do that, but then there's thresholds above that where you produce more of it, right? Yeah, and I a think significantly larger amount of beta glucan can be produced when you don't break down the endosperms all the way or modify the endosperms all the way. Good control. <laughs> I think that's my takeaway for this episode: is if you have good controls in place, you'll get the product you want, and then you can vary that in controlled precise manners and get what you want out rather than taking a crap shot and hoping you get something good. Exactly. All right. I think that's it for today. Uh, next time we're going to discuss more of the food that goes into beer. Uh, we're going to talk about how the barley is malted so that the beer can actually eat it. We're going to talk about the Maillard reaction that allow you to um, get a lot of those robust flavors that you find in beer. And we're also going to discuss water. My favorite, the wettest part of the beer. Most of your beer is water anyway. Have a good night, everybody. Yeah. See you next time.